is kind of like the Bermuda Triangle of technology. So we're going to just push on through, and you're not going to look at that stuff, although it is impressive. And, um, yeah, you're going to focus on this. Fair enough? All right. And then afterwards, if you're interested, Jeremy will explain all the ins and outs of this deep and dark mystery of the projector of New Street. Now, Psalm 139 and a very serious message. According to the World Health Organization, every year there are around 73 million induced abortions. 73 million induced abortions. Now we're going to think about the evil of abortion by examining a wonderful portion of Scripture which I've read to you, which speaks about what I'm calling the miracle of the womb, the miracle in the womb. Now, strictly speaking, uh, the conception of and the development of and the birth of a child is not a miracle. It's not a suspension of or uh, the overriding of natural laws. It's not the turning of water into wine, for instance. So it's not really a miracle, but what happens in the womb and the development of the child in the womb is so astounding that we feel almost duty-bound to call it a miracle. And although it's not strictly speaking a miracle, that's what we'll say. And we're going to think then about what David says here about what goes on and what's involved in the developing child in the womb. And we understand that this psalm is not about abortion. It's not about babies. It's really about God. And we're not going to take time to to study the main theme and emphasis of the psalm. I think you're reasonably familiar with it. It's about the greatness of God. And uh, in the psalm, the the psalmist is explaining uh, who God is and is exalting who God is. But we're going to focus on what he says in passing about what God does in the womb. So then, what can we learn from here about about babies? Well, the first thing we learn is that God makes babies. And of course, moms and dads make babies. But the real story, the story behind the story, is that God makes babies. Now, if you look at verses 13 to 16, what you'll find is an emphasis on you, namely God. God is doing all of this. You and your, those words are repeated. You formed. You knit. Babies are God's work. They are intricately woven by God. They are made in secret by God. So God is doing all of this. And the Bible is emphatic about the fact that this is something God is creating. God is doing this. It's interesting to note that in the Bible, uh, when you go looking for legislation about abortion, uh, 
It's interesting to note that when it comes to anti-abortion legislation in the Bible law, there is no such thing. And the reason for that is, is because the Bible, first of all, assumes that children are a heritage from the Lord. How unimaginable, then, that harm should be done to that child. Because the children are, as the psalmist says in Psalm 127, verse 3, a heritage from the Lord. So each child being formed in the womb is a gift from God. Nothing less than a gift from God Almighty. Furthermore, the Scriptures makes very clear that it's God who opens the womb. Why do people have children? How is it that they can have a child? Well, it's because God opens the womb. God makes it possible. We read in Genesis 29:33, God opened Leah's womb. We read in Genesis 30, verse 22, God opened Rachel's womb. And so whenever there's a conception, the Bible makes it clear that it's God who has made this possible. God is the one who opens the womb. And so as a result, one writer says, induced abortion was so abhorrent to the Israelite mind that it was not necessary. Can you imagine a world in which it's not necessary to warn people that abortion is wrong? How wonderful it would be if that were our world. Sadly, it's not. And hence the need for work like the Atwell Center. But in the Israelite world, that was their world. It was so abhorrent to the Israelite mind that it was not necessary to have a specific prohibition to deal with it in the law. Sufficient was the command, you shall not commit murder. Because God is giving the children. God is opening the womb. And God in the womb is forming the child. God is forming the child. He's the one that's doing the work. You'll notice in verse 13 the word knit. Well, the word knit means to weave together. That's what God's doing. You'll see the word intricately woven in verse 15. Well, that word in Exodus 26 is translated embroider. So what the people were supposed to do was to embroider beautifully colored fabric, and that would be uh, a, a curtain to be used in the tabernacle, some kind of screen in the doorway. And so what's happening in our psalm is that the Lord is pictured as a master craftsman. And what he's doing in the womb is he is intricately weaving. And he's putting together, as it were, this little child, this wonder. Not a wonder of nature. It's a wonder of God. It's an extraordinary creation of God. It's the Lord creating a little baby weaving together as a master craftsman this little one who would be greeted in due time with joy at the moment of birth. So God is doing this. Who makes babies? It's God Almighty. Well, given that, what shall we say then? What kind of implications 
flow from this that God makes babies? Well, first of all, we accept our looks and our makeup and our abilities because who are you? Well, you're somebody God made. You're somebody God put together as you are. You're somebody that God has created and God has crafted. And perhaps, you know, we'll be, we would be less obsessed about how we look and how we are if we remember that we are who we are because God has made us. So we don't want to be. I mean, maybe you are obsessed with, you know, making yourself better and looking better and all. Maybe that's a bit of an obsession. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, do your best. Make the best of what you have. And, uh, you know, when you go out, when you come to church, you know, spruce yourself up a little bit for the benefit of others, at least. And uh, granted, might not be anything spectacular that you arrive at, but it's okay. So I'm not saying uh, that uh, there's anything wrong with that. I'm talking about obsession, and I'm talking about the fact that if God made us, we should be content and be okay. And furthermore, we should accept our circumstances as regards children. God makes babies. So we should be content with our circumstances as regards children. God doesn't open every womb. And God doesn't give children to everybody who want children. And sometimes the ways of God are difficult, and sometimes the providence of God is hard, and sometimes the road He sets before us is It's really not an easy one, and this can be a particularly difficult road. But he loves us. If you're a Christian, and in this particular area, the Lord is not blessed, and he's taken you down a different road, and it's a hard road, well, the Lord Lord loves you. He loves his people. And he does what is best for his people. And We submit then to this gracious and wise and loving God. And in the situation in which he puts us and in the circumstances in which we find ourselves in the providence of God, well, we glorify him and we live for him and we do all we can for him and we serve our generation under him. And we gratefully and sometimes with... uh, particular need for His grace, we submit to Him and serve Him. So that's the first implication that comes from this fact that God makes babies, and that's that we, we accept who we are and we accept our circumstances. Secondly, we submit to the limitations God has placed upon us. We submit to the limitations God has placed upon us. He knit us together. And what we are physically, with all of the physical problems that we might have, well, God has made us the way he has made us. And we happily submit to that. You know, God has given me asthma. I have trouble breathing. That's the way it is. Submit to that. And bow before the sovereign will of God. Remember Exodus 4.11. 
Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So whatever issues you have, God has made you that way. Remember in John 9, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, who made that man blind? Who sinned? Was it him or was it parents? I mean, because if he's blind, it must be because somebody somewhere sinned. And God's, uh, the Lord Jesus' answer is, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Whatever your issues might be, if you're a Christian, you are made the way you are in order that the works of God might be displayed in you. I'm not saying this is an easy pill to swallow. But I'm saying it's a wonderful thing to know that God has his hand in all such things. And God is sovereign. And no matter what our issues might be, we can live for the glory of God. And we can honor him. We can represent Christ and we can shine forth the beauty of our Savior no matter what our limitations might be. And we have example after example of that kind of thing in this world in which we live, where we see Christians severely limited and struggling in enormous ways. There's a Christian man who has no arms and legs. The Lord made him that way, and he knows that, and he glorifies the Lord in his life, and he's a faithful witness. So we submit to the, the limitations that God has placed upon us. He makes babies, you see. And then the third and last implication is, if this is true, if God makes babies in the womb, we will not kill them. If God is doing this, we will not step in and put an end to His work. Have you... Have you read about what happens in abortions? It is. It is horrific. And no, God, God is making these children. God is forming and shaping someone. And we will stand back in awe rather than step in and end it. The second thing I'll say is that God relates to the babies. God relates to the unborn. He weaves them together, you see. He knows all about them. Their frame is not hidden. Each one, his or her frame, is not hidden to God. And God knows David. David says, my frame, not someone else's, My frame is not hidden. David, as an individual, is known to God, and and, uh, God sees David's unformed substance. And David's days and moments are planned out, verse 16. I'm not saying that all babies are saved. I'm simply saying that, uh, that God is vitally interested in and vitally involved in their lives, and even at this stage, even in the womb. And we have hints of that here in this passage, but other 
uh, passages give us clear examples of, of this kind of thing. Just turn over for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. And what we read in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5 is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So you notice then the words, I knew you. I consecrated you. I appointed you. What I'm saying is that God relates to the child in the womb. And notice especially the word knew, because the word knew involves love and affection. And so here it's so extraordinary that God says, before you were born, I knew you. I knew all about you. And more than that, my affections were engaged towards you. That's astounding. How could anybody then do what is done to an unborn child in our day by the multitude? Turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. Luke chapter 1. You're very familiar with this passage, I'm sure, and we won't take time to read it. Luke 1, 39 to 44. But you know that John the Baptist in the womb when Mary enters the room and Mary's carrying Jesus, that he leaps in the womb for joy. Well, how did Elizabeth know that the baby in her womb leapt for joy? How did she know that? Well, she's filled with the Spirit. The passage tells us that. And clearly, the Spirit of God must have revealed to her that the reason the baby leapt, this was not just an ordinary movement of the baby in the womb. We know that that ordinarily happens. And at some point along the development, the woman begins to, to feel that. But how did she know what prompted that movement? How did she know what motivated that movement? Well, the Spirit of God must have told her that. And she spoke then as one filled with the Spirit. Verse 41 makes clear that she was filled. And so at the behest of the Spirit, she speaks and the Spirit informs her that the baby was motivated by joy to move and in particular that joy was stirred because the Savior was in the room. Now that's just extraordinary. It's astounding. So clearly God is involved in forming the child and God relates to the unborn child. And what's more, we also know from modern technology that the child relates to its environment. I shouldn't say it's. The baby relates to his or her environment. We know that around week 11, the baby, if the baby is pricked with a needle, the baby will recoil in, in pain. We also know that if they, if they sound a beep before pricking the baby with a needle, when the baby hears the sound of a beep, the baby will recoil in anticipation of pain. That's going on around 11 weeks. And so God relates to the baby in the womb, but 
The baby also is in some ways aware of of its surroundings, of his or her surroundings. Even at that time in Canada, you can kill a baby. So God, um, God makes babies and God relates to the unborn. And, and thirdly, God makes persons. What's God doing? He's, he's making a person. He's not manipulating protoplasm. He's making a person. It's not just part of a mother. He's making a person. David talks about me. He says, my frame. I was made. I was skillfully wrought. It was my substance. This was, this was David in the womb. David's talking about Two people here. What's God doing? He's doing something in my mother's womb with me. He sees two people there. They're two persons. It's a a person in the womb. Luke 1, 41 and 44, there's a term used of, of John the Baptist. He's called a child or a baby. It's the same word that's used in Luke 2 and verse 12 to refer to the Lord Jesus. It speaks about John as a baby in the womb and about Jesus as a baby outside of the womb and uses the same term. Well, naturally. They're both children. They're both babies. They're both persons. And you can't kill them outside the womb, you know. And you can't kill them inside the womb, you know. Because God's making persons. John Frame, a theologian named John Frame, said, there is nothing in Scripture that even remotely suggests that the unborn child is anything less than a human person from the moment of conception. And honestly, we don't care what everybody else says. We don't care what the courts say. Sometimes the courts are going to say, yep, you're a person. And sometimes the courts are going to say, yep, no, you're not. And it doesn't change things, you see. Some of you who read history know that the Dred Scott decision in the 1800s said that African-American slaves, you know, they're not people. Well, it didn't change anything. Of course they're people. And just because the, the court says, no, you're not, doesn't change the reality under God. And it doesn't matter then what the world says and what people say about the unborn child. It's a person. The Bible makes that adamantly clear. We fancy ourselves, you know, to be such a civilized and actually compassionate country. I mean, people all over the world, they think Canadians, like Canadians are so nice. You know, they're not like this place and that. Canadians are always nice. And then we kill the unborn. We're not like the Assyrians. Remember the Assyrians? Jonah hated the Assyrians. Jonah didn't want to go and preach to the Assyrians in case, you know what God's like, he's going to save them, and we don't want that. But you know, the Assyrians were adamantly opposed to abortion. If a woman 
was involved in an abortion and she was caught, she would be impaled on a stake. And even if she died during the abortion process, procedure, she'd still be impaled on a stake. So abhorrent was the idea of an abortion to the Assyrians. And we read history and we say, oh yeah, they were terrible people. And no wonder all the nations around them were terrified of them because they do terrible things. What a horrific nation. And we kill 100,000 babies every year? What are we? What is this country? So no, God makes persons. That's clear. And lastly, God has plans for the baby. You see verse 16? You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The New Living Translation slash paraphrase says, every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God, God has plans. You know God has plans for everything. You know that because you know God is sovereign. And God has plans for the details of the lives of every person who's ever walked the face of the earth. Now, this statement is not about salvation. It's about sovereignty. It's just saying that God's in control of everything. And when it comes to the little ones in the womb, they are not outside the pale of God's sovereignty. And so what happens in abortion is someone says, yeah, well, you know, God might have plans, but I've got plans on my own, and that's just what I'm going to do. And I'm going to end this. Well, you know, the early church, uh, the early church knew that this was wrong. In a document called the Didache, it says, you shall do no murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not corrupt boys, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not deal in magic, you shall do no sorcery, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when they're born. Because they did that too. And sometimes it's done today. So what's happening here then? Well, God is making a baby. We know that from this passage. God relates to the baby. God is making a person. And God has plans for the child. Well, how, how are we to understand our day? How do we understand what's going on vis-a-vis abortion in Canada and in North America? The men of Issachar were men who, who understood their times. How, how are we to understand our times and the day in which we live? I mean, are we to be encouraged or to be discouraged? To be honest with you, I'm not sure. I, I know that Roe versus Wade has been repealed. That's good. But I also know that in 2020, a full 29% of those who self-identify as Christians are in favor of abortion and are not pro-life. 29% of professing evangelicals and you, 
You want to, if you had it, you'd pull your hair out. You don't understand. Like, how can that be? And the first thing, my first response is, okay, def- define Christian for me. <laughs> define Christian. What do you mean by self-identify as a Christian? How unbiblical is your definition? Because how can you read the Bible? And no, you, you read the Bible, you can't arrive at that kind of position. So, how are we to understand our day? Frankly, I really don't know. But the question I'm asking is, okay, what can we do? In in light of all of this, and I, look, I've just touched on things, and I've, I've left out things because of time's sake. What can we do? Well, first of all, we pray. If we serve a sovereign God, then the first thing we always do is pray. Because that's the best thing we can do, is pray. So we pray. We pray that God will stop this. And we, we pray that God will stop this. I could have thrown all kinds of statistics at you. It doesn't matter. You know, we pray that God will stop this. God will stop it. That he'll put an end to it. He can do that. We pray that God might stir, you know, that he might stir evangelicals. What a splendid history Catholics have in terms of fighting against abortion. What a sorry history evangelicals have of the same. And pray then that God will stir evangelical churches in our area, that they will rise up and speak, and rise up and support those who are involved in work like we've just heard about. And, and we pray that God will raise up champions. That God will raise up champions like, remember Wilberforce fighting against slavery? Pray that God will raise up champions in our day who will do great work in this whole matter. So we pray. Secondly, we, we pass around good information. You know, we, there's lots of information on the web. There are a lot of good evangelical books that talk about what goes on in the womb and about what they've discovered in the whole area of genetics and what that, what that tells us about what's going on in the womb and how impressive that is even to, well, to non-Christians. And makes them think about, uh, examine their position on this whole matter of abortion. What is an ultrasound except passing on information? You don't really know what's going on. It's not just a piece of the mother. Take a look at this. Well, in one way or another, we want to pass on information to people. Let them know the astounding things that we know about the child in the womb. Let them know. And when they see, when they read, they may go a different way. So, you know, pass around good information. Thirdly, support. Support the Atwell Center and and groups like it. You don't just stand up and say, well, I'm against that. 
Well, that's not all we do. We don't just say, well, I'm against that. Who am I? I'm against this and this and this and this and this. I'm really kind of an against things guy. I don't do much, but I like, I like to stand against things. No, but I get, it's good to be against that which is bad, but it's not enough. And so we support, and we want to, we want to support those who are working, like the Atwell Center, to, to deliver the unborn, to save them from those who would put an end to their lives. And they want to help those who are tempted to end the lives of the unborn, and they want to minister to those uh, who are involved in crisis pregnancies and so forth. So, so our job is, is to support that. And then lastly, we proclaim the gospel. That's who we are. That's who we are by definition. That's who we are as a church. What do we do? We, we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the non-negotiable. That's the sine qua non. This is who we are. We preach the gospel of Christ. We, we let everybody know about the unsearchable riches of Christ, that there is life in Christ, that there's forgiveness in Christ, that there's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. People need Christ, you see. And we know this, don't we? I'm not telling you anything new. You know people need Christ. And people who are tempted to kill their babies, they need Christ. And people who have killed their babies... Well, they need Christ. And people who are against abortion, well, they need Christ. And people who promote abortion, and they need Christ. And people who have labored all their lives against abortion, they need Christ. And those who have survived, you know, the survivors, it seemed like they were going to be aborted, but then they survived Somehow in the kindness and providence of God, they survived and they grew up to be fine young men and women. They need Christ as well. And people who have, who have sacrificed and fought to fight abortion, they need Christ. Because, you know, to be against abortion doesn't make you a Christian. To be against abortion is not going to save you. Because what's our fundamental problem? Well, it's sin. And sin doesn't just kill the body. It kills body and soul in hell. God, does, God judges sin, and that's what happens. And so abortion kills millions. I, I've told you that. But sin, folks, kills everyone. It kills everybody. And not just physically. Body and soul in hell and forever. So what do we do? Well, you know, we need to stand against abortion. We need to do what we can. We need to help. We need to help. But our fundamental job as Christians, our great calling, our grand commission is to rescue the perishing, to point them to Jesus, call on them to trust in him, and they'll be saved. And, you know, the same is true for you. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're sitting here, you're not a Christian, maybe you're watching, and you're not a Christian, we're telling you about Christ. I'm not saying to you, now you go out and you be a good conservative, and you stand against abortion, and you'll be fine. 
No, you, if that's all you do, you'll go straight to hell. No, you need Christ. Like everybody, like all of us. You need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to come to him for the forgiveness of your own soul. And you know, if you've, if you've had an abortion, the Lord forgives. You come to him in faith. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. From all sin. From that kind of sin. From any kind of sin. Jesus said about those who were putting him to death on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then at Pentecost, there were people who had nailed Jesus to the cross. There were people who had cried, crucify him, crucify him. And they were saved. And they were forgiven. And had they died that night, they would have gone straight to glory. That's what God can do. That's how Jesus saves. If you believe in him, he'll forgive you. He'll save you. He'll take you to heaven. Take that gospel, Christian. Spread it around. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we want to thank you for what we've heard today about this work and how we plead with you that your hand of blessing in an extraordinary way may rest upon it and that you might grant extraordinary strength to those who labor in it. And we pray that you'll bless your word to us so that we would not only do all we can in this whole matter, but especially that we will take the good news about Jesus and tell it to everybody. We ask this for his sake and for his glory. Amen.